from wallstack.ca. Welcome to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series, where we discuss all kinds of financial principles, concepts, and products. Our aim is to make money matters simple again. Hey, do you know the difference between mutual funds, ETFs, stock portfolios, and managed portfolios? In this podcast, we unpack these different types of concepts. We discuss when it makes sense to purchase either of them, what to look out for when you make a decision, and whether you are getting value for money. You might just find that your money can work harder for you. In this podcast, I interviewed Jamie Brubacher from Sidel Asset Management to explain these concepts to us. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Vincent. How are you? Uh, great, man. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So before we start, can you give us a quick intro of yourself and, and who Sidel Asset Management is? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is uh, Jamie Brubaker. I'm a client portfolio manager at Sidel Asset Management. Um, I've worked at Sidel for uh, approaching about 10 years now. And, um, you know, from academic background, I'm a CFA charter holder, uh, CFA charter holder, I should say, you know, went to school here in Toronto uh, and have uh, my wife and, and kids just live north of the city. Um, just a little quickly about Sidel. Sidel is a privately owned asset management firm. We focus on essentially two parts of, of the investment space. We, we focus on the private wealth and the high net worth space within, within Canada, um, and then as well uh, within the institutional space. So uh, taking care of uh, various kind of institutional pension type mandates and, and strategies as well. Great, thanks, Jamie. Okay, so let's, let's go straight into the discussion here. Uh, let's say I'm an investor, I'm a client, and I phone a friend, and in this case, I'm going to phone you, Jamie, uh, who is a financial advisor and a fund manager, and I want to invest some money. What are the things going on in your mind when you receive my phone call, and, and how do you know whether you can help me as a client? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important for, for people to understand you know, that idea of when when you do knock on a financial advisor's door what are the things that they're looking at or what are the things that they're considering um you know first off just to give you an idea of of how you're going to get uh potentially treated what type of products or strategies you're going to be offered so the first one i think is 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 generally size of portfolio and i think advisors look at this in two ways one is how much money do you have that's investable today which will kind of determine what type of strategies and approaches uh, they're able to put you in. Um, and also, there's also the, the kind of flight path. Are you in that um, the accumulation phase? So you're saving money, you're early or mid-career, and money's getting put away for retirement? Or are you at the other end of that spectrum where you're divesting and money's going out the door and, and that gives you kind of different a different profile? And I think that's the profile part is the second piece, which is... You know, from a risk standpoint, what's the goals? What are the objectives? How much volatility? If you think about risk, in my mind, it's how much volatility can you take um, or handle? And everyone's got a different amount. Um, there's the emotional side of volatility, and then there's the the practical side of volatility. And that's what they're going to essentially try and figure out. And then the, I would say the last piece is just from a regulatory perspective. So what... You know what type of accounts do you have uh, based on on those type of accounts? What type of strategies or products are are available um, for the family? Okay, so um, 
as an as an investor, I would be wondering: uh, Is the fund manager going to put myself into a a mutual fund? Uh, I've heard about ETFs. I know that I can uh, maybe run on my own stock portfolio, but then I also know that there are third-party fund managers like yourself. You know, what are maybe let's um, let's look at the differences between those four. Let's start with um, uh, mutual funds. Sure. So a mutual fund um, is a, a financial product that's professionally managed. So there is a professional money manager behind the mutual fund that's deciding what gets purchased and what gets sold. They're very highly regulated, which means uh, they can go in anybody's portfolio and, and you can buy them in very, very small amounts. And the idea behind the mutual fund is we're going to set up this safe, audited structure um, that's very transparent and can give every type of client, big or small, the confidence to make an investment. And, and that's how they're structured. The, the downside, I would say, to all that regulation, they, they generally come, they're generally expensive, especially for smaller amounts. So fees can be kind of north of 2% um, in the mutual fund space. And you know, depending on the client, uh, that might be something they they can only access, but it, you know it's uh, it is one of those financial products that's got a long track record. It's been around for a very long time, and as I said, anybody can buy it. You can buy it through your discount brokerage account. You can go into your local bank branch, and they'll sell you a mutual fund. Um, so it's very very accessible. It just happens to be relatively expensive. Jamie, I think maybe just one thing uh, that I also just think about on that one is that. The fund, the mutual fund itself, is managed according to the mandate that's been given to that fund manager. Um, and so whatever that is, whether it's a balanced fund or 100% equity, uh, and it's not really managed um, with the client so much in mind. It's more managed according to the mandate. Am I right? 100%. And I think that's one of the downsides to to the mutual fund space is that it's it's immense. There is a mutual fund for everything and every one theoretically and figuring out which one is right for you still takes some advice and theoretically that's what's happening when you go into the branch is someone's supposed to do that work figure out which mutual fund is a good fit for you it's funny how usually if you go into a bank with a green logo you end up with a mutual fund with a green logo but that's generally how some of that stuff works Okay, so let's. Um, the other one is an ETF or exchange traded fund. Uh, how does that differ to mutual funds? Because obviously, that's um, those are a, a, you know funds or concepts that's been utilized quite aggressively by um, by retail investors nowadays. And um, yeah, maybe just unpack that for us. Sure. So ETFs are relatively new, especially compared to mutual funds, but they have been around for for quite a long time. So uh, an exchange-traded fund is, is something that is also accessible to everyone, but it doesn't have that layer of, of professional management. So what I mean by that is most of the time, uh, ETFs historically have been built to track something. So they might track the, the S&P TSX, which is kind of the, the main Canadian equity benchmark, or they might be built to track the S&P 500, which is, you know, the top 500 stocks in the United States. And what it does is it gives clients a very cost-effective way to get access to a broad 
market or a broad index. Now, over the last kind of five, 10 years, they've gotten very specialized. You can buy an ETF that is, you know, is only on the price of oil and has leverage and all these other type of things. You know, there, it's a good tool because it is relatively cheap, but it doesn't come with that layer of what's right for me, which ones should I use to build my portfolio if you're doing it on your own. Um, but, but they are good tools and they're very cost effective. Jamie, you mentioned something earlier about the ETF in terms of not being managed actively, uh, but rather track the index. And I think it's important just for our listeners, you know, sometimes they might hear the word passive. It's a passive portfolio. And that's exactly what it is. It's tracking an index. Um, so there's no actively managed person behind that portfolio to select the, the stocks behind it. That's, that's it exactly. And I think the other important thing that people should know about indexes is an index is not an investment portfolio. Generally, most of the popular indexes you read in the paper or, or see on Yahoo Finance, they are indexes that are just comprised of essentially by size. So the bigger the company, the bigger their weight in the index. And in Canada specifically, where the stock market is, is really concentrated in a couple sectors, you know, 30% of the TSX, for instance, is in financials because we've got, you know, some of the world's biggest kind of most profitable banks. They make up a very big component of the index. Um, personally, I wouldn't say that anybody should have 30% of their money in a single in or a single industry, um, even if it is Canadian financials, which which have been great. Um, so I always think that's the 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 drawback is clients will sometimes look at, well, if I just buy the TSX, that's my portfolio. And they're not portfolios. They're just a collection of stocks based on size. And if a company gets bigger, uh, they go up in, in weight. If they get smaller, they go down in weight. And it has nothing to do with what the underlying business is, is up to. So normally it's a, it's a good tool to use an ETF. Um, I think what is also maybe important is that some of most of those funds are pretty um, cost effective, uh, cheap. But as you say, some of those funds could be expensive if it's a exotic kind of ETF. I'm not sure what the pricing is on like a Bitcoin ETF or as you say, well, but if you see a fund which is called an ETF, don't uh, don't just make the assumption it's cheap. No, they they normally pretty cheap, but some of the exotic ones could be a bit more expensive. Yeah, and the ones that are cheap are are the big ones, right? The S and P five hundred ETF is, you know, a couple basis points or 005 percent of of assets is what it costs, and then there's a brokerage fee to buy it, so it might be nine dollars ninety nine cents. Like, the big ones are absolutely very cost effective. To your point, they're they're starting to launch actively managed ETFs, which is kind of a mutual fund packaged in an ETF. And it, you know, guess what? It comes with a higher fee. So you're absolutely right. Just because it's an ETF doesn't mean it's cheap. Um, there's very expensive ETFs out there as well. Jamie, then the other one is stock portfolios. Uh, I think the latest stats um, is that 40% of the trade that goes through the Wall Street is a retail investors. So that's definitely been picking up quite a bit. Retail people creating their own um, stock account, buying shares and bonds and these kind of things, Robinhood, 
they did an IPO last year, or, uh, end of last year. Um, maybe just stock portfolios, uh, maybe just explain that to us quickly. Yeah, so I think this is kind of the most classic way uh, people have invested over the last kind of 50 plus years is uh, you, you look at the idea of I'm going to build, I'm going to go out and pick stocks. Some people are into it and do a lot of reading and, and research. Um, some people might do it based on what they've recently read or something a friend or family member uh, talks about. And, you know, it's it's very cost effective because you're just paying, you know, in some places like Robinhood, for instance, it doesn't cost anything to buy a stock. It's free. Um, you can do it with small amounts of money. But I think the, you know, there's no safety net in the sense of there's no, regula- there's no regulator that's looking over your shoulder or anything else to see does buying stock A, is that appropriate for you and your family? Um, so there's no there's no guardrails when it comes to building a, a stock portfolio if you're gonna do it by yourself. But it is, I mean, it is, look, it is very effective and there are lots of stories out there of people who bought, you know, bought Amazon when it was really cheap and, and now, you know, they've made all this money on Amazon. But there's there's lots of those stories, but the stories that you don't hear necessarily are the ones that that didn't work out you know no one tells you about the stock they bought that went to zero they always tell you about the one that that went up you know went to the moon if if you're elon musk right so i think it's important we're going to keep quiet off of our netflix uh, shares and and those kind of things we're not going to mention them at the barbecue anymore i i mean probably not um depending on how early you bought netflix but i think the point for uh for people to think about is how much time and energy do they want to spend figuring out which stocks are right for them. And I think this is where it kind of parlays into kind of the next category, which is uh, a managed portfolio where, you know, there, there's somebody whose job it is to look and find these companies and, and do it in, in, a, in a specific manner, right? And, and usually has a specific style. And I know um, we can talk about that. I, I I think about the team at Seidel, for instance, that does stock research. It's all they do. It's it's 100% their job is doing research. Um, I think I like to think that we get it right more times than we don't. But it's not a perfect it's not a perfect science. Um, things are missed and 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 things happen. And I, I I just wonder how much if you have lots of time and you can do it fantastic but but for most families i would argue there there isn't enough time in the day to to do it efficiently so how does that portfolio at a at a uh, fund management company like sadel um, and, and other similar ones how would a portfolio for a client um, differ to a portfolio of of let's say mutual funds or uh, etfs um, if they come to you obviously the size of the portfolio as you said you know uh, that's important. Um, you know, if you go to a mutual fund, you can invest from five dollars upwards or twenty dollars upwards to anything. The same with an ETF. Uh, with your stock portfolios, also it doesn't cost anything. But there's a there's a limit uh, in terms of a minimum minimum limit normally uh, with uh, with uh, third party portfolio managers. Yeah. So there's always going to be a limit um, based on how much invest. The the term that everyone uses is investable assets. So. Families have lots of families have assets. Your home is an asset. If you if you own your car, it's an asset. Investable assets are is is wealth essentially that you can put 
into an investment vehicle or or into an investment market. So we can't take your car and invest it in a portfolio, but if you do have you know cash or bonds or GICs or other types of financial instruments, those all make up your kind of investable assets. And so what firms like Seidel and, and others on the managed side is, before we even get to what does your portfolio look like, we do a lot of work up front on trying to figure out what the family's objectives are. So you, you're saving this money or you have this wealth, um, what's its purpose? What, what are you trying to accomplish with it, right? It's, a, it's something that you're going to, you should have an objective for. And it might be, I want to pay for my kids' education. I want to use my wealth to help get my kids' homes, especially if they live in GTA where it's very, very expensive. You know, give my kids a head start. Um, I want to retire and live off the income generated my, from my portfolio. A lot of work for, for us is spent up front trying to figure out what that objective is. And then it gets into, okay, well, what are the best tools to use in order to accomplish that objective? And I think from Seidel's perspective, and, and one of the reasons why, you know, for us, you know, clients need to have a decent amount of investable assets is because we're going to put all that upfront time and energy into making sure we can get it right and get that objective set up. Jamie, if you look at the industry, what is that minimum value normally for, for fund managers, professional fund managers to take on a new client? So usually, I mean, there's if if I look at the big banks and, and my understanding of how the banks break up kind of wealth, it's you know sub if you have less than two hundred fifty thousand of investable assets, you you end up at at the branch, right? Somebody you maybe maybe somebody in an office at a branch um, between two fifty and seven fifty, you probably get yourself into somebody that has an office within the branch or maybe is is a um, focused on wealth. This is kind of all they do. Um, and then north of 750, usually you get into the, the range of, of working with a boutique investment management firm where uh, there's all that planning can, can happen and all that uh, investment objective work can happen up front. And there's enough assets that we can essentially put in place our strategy, our approach, and make it you know, cost effective. And maybe just a, a final point on that, uh, within your within the license of a fund manager, then obviously they can include anything in that portfolio. They can include ETFs, uh, shares, bonds, cash, property, uh, REITs. You can even include mutual funds if you have to. Um, so it's, it's really a combination of then different uh, investment uh, vehicles to include in that portfolio. Yeah, and I think I think that's an important point. With all these different kind of levels of service, there's also the regulatory or the licensing required to offer that service. For instance, um, if you you can have a mutual fund license, which allows you to purchase and and sell mutual funds to clients. The onus on picking the right securities and stuff like that happens within the portfolio manager that's managing the mutual fund. So there's less worry or less risk that the the person selling the mutual fund is going to make a kind of a fatal or financially fatal mistake for the family. The second kind of level, uh, if you want to think of it that way as levels, um, is is in the brokerage world where you've got somebody who's ha is able to essentially present ideas or strategies 
but the decision to make an investment or not make an investment is actually still on the client. So someone would call uh, or discuss with you, we'd like to recommend you do A, uh, and you need to decide yes or no if A is right for you. And then that third level, which is kind of the, I would argue the, the kind of the gold standard from an advice perspective is, is what, for instance, what Seidel does, where we offer discretionary portfolio management, which means the advice and decisions made for your portfolio are on your, um, your wealth consultant or your, essentially your client portfolio manager, people like myself. And, and what that means is it takes the burden of, is this right for me, off the client's shoulders and onto uh, a professional investment or professional portfolio manager. And so from Seidel's perspective, we would decide whether stock A goes into your portfolio, stock B, we would help essentially determine what your mix is and, and all that good stuff. And that's why we spend so much time up front making sure we've got the objectives clear so that with that discretion, we're using it appropriately. Great, thank you. In the investment world and, and also in, in any other industry, there's a lot of jargon, a lot of uh, words being used. And I think that's maybe why a lot of people don't uh, read the newspapers on the financial side, just because there's so many jargon used. So and we want to keep clear of some of those things in, uh, you know, as we tell these, these stories and these concepts to, um, to clients. One thing in terms of the investment styles, uh, can we maybe just talk about that uh, a second? So when we, so when a client uh, comes to a fund manager uh, or even buying a mutual fund, sometimes they may talk about um, that the fund manager has a value or growth investment style. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the investment industry has done a great job of creating styles on top of styles. If, if you know what I mean, like there's, there's a style for everything. Um, and, but if you were to peel it all back and go back to kind of the fundamentals, some would argue that there's really two kind of core investment styles or approaches. One is, is, is value. And this would be quoted as kind of the, you know, the Warren Buffett way of doing things, which is I'm going to find uh, a company where the market or its value in the market currently is under essentially underappreciating or undervaluing what that company is really worth, right? And, and, and that would have been Warren Buffett's kind of approach to a lot of these things is buy good quality companies for cheap and uh, hold on to them. That's, that's kind of his, you know, in a nutshell, there's obviously lots more complication. The opposite side of that from a growth standpoint is I want to find companies that have these fantastic trajectories around growth, right? And they are going to change the world for one one thing or another, either it's a product or a concept or, you know, there's been lots, especially recently, growth has been the style that's, that's very much rewarded investors. There's been more ETFs, for instance, launched based on growth types of, of portfolios. And it's really just looking at some of the fundamentals for the company. Um, if I think about how these styles kind of apply to Seidel, we would actually argue that you know, trying to split the market into value or growth is a little bit difficult because there's tons of nuance in between there. And so from our perspective, we look for, for quality, we look for cash flow, we look for things that, again, we can, we can hold, but we're not solely focused on making sure, you know, we get the deepest value because sometimes things are 
priced low for a reason. The company's broken or it can't be fixed or uh, the market may be misunderstanding where where the future is. Um, and, you know, you want to avoid those. So I, I think that's, you know, a bit of a breakdown. And as I said, there's tons of nuance in between there. But those are the kind of the two main styles. Growth has been the winning style over the last, essentially since the financial crisis. With interest rates going up now, however, value, you know, is, is actually starting to make a bit of a comeback. So um, companies like Procter & Gamble and banks would be classified as value. Um, so it's big companies, long term, uh, they may not grow that quickly, uh, maybe giving some more dividends as we go forward, as opposed to uh, growth stocks like a Tesla or like um, Facebook. Okay, Twitter is off the charts now, but uh, some of those technology companies, they used to be growth orientated where they don't give dividends, Amazon maybe as well, high growth, share prices go up, but there's no dividends they pay out to the investors. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think typically that's the case. But again, you could always find a growthy bank or a deep value bank. And I think this is where it might become difficult for, for investors is trying to determine, okay, well, which category is it in? And and the interesting thing I think that's happening, if you think of a company like you know, Apple, for instance, you know, Apple is such a large business today there is they you know there is still lots of growth opportunities for them um but it it doesn't carry the same growth risk that tesla has for instance where the tesla stock is is relatively very expensive but their growth could be uh astronomical right and it's just again it's just a different style a different approach and i think from an investor standpoint if you're thinking about either investing on your own or using a professional manager you do want to have an appreciation for how do they see the world, right? How are they thinking about investing? Do they are they looking for the next Tesla or are they looking for, you know, the next Apple? Uh, at, at, you know what I mean? From to the point that once Apple became well established and and was able to generate all that cash flow, uh, you know, as an example. Thanks, Jamie. If we if we just think about um, or just helping people just to read more of the financial newspapers, you know, I'm always trying to get my kids to read the. The newspaper and and <laughs> there are so many ratios in the in the newspaper you know if we just think about um, stocks and bonds and yields and these kind of things maybe if we can just take two i mean obviously people can just google this stuff and and get a good definition but uh, maybe the two most important ones is what they explain yield in the newspaper when you look at different shares uh, what is the yield or dividend yield that they talk about and then the other one is a, a p over an e which is a price earnings ratio can you maybe just give us a quick view in terms of uh, that? Sure. So on the dividend yield um, number that you might see in the paper attached to to a stock, um, this is essentially assuming nothing changes at the company level based on their current dividend. So usually companies in North America pay a dividend every three months. So they pay it on the quarters. Uh, it's different other places around the world. In, in Europe and Asia, there's a different schedule. But in North America, we've come used to the idea that you get a payment every quarter. So if this payment, for instance, is is 50 cents uh, a year and the stock is trading at $10, it's essentially saying you've got a dividend yield of 5%. So from an investor standpoint, if you bought stock A and held it for a year, you would get an income or in dividend 5% on your money. Uh, 
the catch on this is that things change, sometimes for the good, sometimes for better, and sometimes for worse. So, you know, if I think about companies that we tend to invest in, we like the idea that the company's increasing that amount every year. So you buy it for $10, you get 50 cents the first year, and then the next year you get 55 cents. You haven't paid any more money for the stock. You still bought it for 10, but now it starts to distribute additional income. And, and we would call these dividend, dividend growers and, and companies that have been you know, committed and have these great track records, <clears throat> excuse me, that have these great track records of increasing their dividends. On the flip side, when companies get into financial trouble, they can cut their dividends, right? And, and the yield is, is essentially uh, based on the price that you're paying today. So sometimes if you look in the paper and you see a stock that's yielding 15%, that might be because the stock is really, really low and not because the dividend is really, really high or, or it's sustainable. Um, so I, I know people look at yield and think, oh, perfect, I'll just buy this and I'll earn my 7%. But you, the moment the company makes a change or an adjustment, you don't earn your 7% anymore. Yeah, and I think that's important. Both of those ratios are backwards looking in terms of what happened as opposed to um, really what is uh, the growth on those dividends, as you say, um, uh, and, the, and the price. Absolutely. And it, and it kind of ties into the, the next ratio that's usually in the paper, which is this P over E or, or price over earnings. And so the way to think about what, you know, what is that that's the, the price you pay for a single dollar of earnings uh, that the company generates. So the, the interesting one is there's lots of companies in the stock market that don't earn any money. So their PEs are, it's a nothing number. It's, it's, a, it's an NA in the paper because uh, there is no earnings. There's nothing to divide. And then uh, for companies that do have earnings, you get this, this ratio, which is a 10 PE means you're paying $10 for every $1 of earnings. And again, because the market is full of nuance, you know, you could start at the industry level. There are certain industries where there's more growth. So people are willing to pay a higher price for every dollar of earnings because they've got growth behind it. And then there's industries where um, there isn't as much growth, for instance, so you wouldn't want to pay as much. And I think this becomes a bit of a trap when you start thinking about, uh, I'm a value investor, I'm a growth investor, I'm just going to go through the paper and buy all the companies that have low price to earnings. Some of them might have a low price to earnings because people are worried or the market's worried that those earnings might not be there in the future. And, and I think that's an important, um, important thing to consider as well. I, none of these ratios that you see in the paper can just be kind of blindly screened to build a portfolio. You, they have to, you know, there's all the underlying pieces that go into why the number is what it is. Jamie, as you've just been talking, it just kind of reminds me again that there are so many things to look at and um, it's easy to buy your own portfolio when the market goes up because everything goes up. Um, but it's, um, it's a lot more challenging when you have a volatile market and for retail investors that um, may not have had the experience of 2000, uh, 2008, you know, uh, 2020, uh, and also the downsides in, in the 90s as well. So um, it definitely becomes more complicated. Uh, it's not that easy. So if I'm convinced that I, I want to employ a, 
fund manager. Uh, I've got a sizable portfolio and I've decided not to go for a mutual fund or ETFs. I don't want to manage all my money myself. I want to give it to a fund manager to manage for me. Quickly, what are the, the main things that you think that I need to look at uh, in my due diligence uh, selecting a, a fund manager? So I think the most important thing right up front is to see if there's an alignment between yourself and and like the family and and the investment manager from a philosophy standpoint. As we've talked about over the last kind of 15, 20 minutes or so, there's so much nuance to this. There's so many different styles. There's so many different approaches. You know, one isn't better than the other. They're just different. And I think there's, it's very important to ensure that there's an alignment uh, between how the investment manager is going to help you reach your goals and, and how you think, you know, if that makes sense to you. And, and what I mean by that is, if I just use Seidel as an example, our philosophy is, is pretty straightforward. And, and from my perspective, pretty easily understandable. Um, we look to buy uh, high quality companies, uh, we look to give clients exposure outside of Canada, which is a very big component of what we do at Seidel, which is we have great Canadian strategies, but a lot of Canadians have lots of exposure naturally to Canada. So let's get access and get exposure to other parts of the world. Um, and then what we look for is, is, is high quality. And, and, and that's our philosophy and, and style. And we want to find high quality businesses that generate cash uh, that have an ability to compound that cash over time, um, and and that makes up an investment portfolio. And there's, it means we do great when the markets, you know, we do relatively great when the markets are down, but if the markets are really moving up quickly or are on the back of um, heavy growth or or non cash flow generating companies, we tend to trail behind. And I, and I think there needs to be an alignment and understanding between the, the family and the investment manager on, okay, that's great. I've seen your historical returns. Um, that's perfect. But how did you get there? And does that make sense? And, and is that the experience I want to have um, from that perspective? Yeah, I think that um, I think that, that first one is key, just to make sure that um, there's alignment of how I think about my money and how I want to be managed. And then that philosophy on the other side. Otherwise, we're just going to, it's not going to be a great end, <laughs> I think, for, for most people. And that's why I guess I need to find the right fund manager, but the fund manager needs to find the right client as well. A hundred percent. It's got to be an alignment both ways, right? Or from my perspective, if, if there isn't or if there's a misalignment between the two, um, you just end up, somebody ends up disappointed um, or unhappy with, with some of the outcomes. Um, so philosophy, I think, is first and foremost, 100%. Obviously, you want to have an understanding from a firm perspective is, you know, have they, is there a track record? Is it something that they just started recently? Or is it something that's been in the works for a long period of time? Is it a, is the philosophy or the approach proven? Can, can you see it? Another kind of key thing, I think, is, is when you think about what you're paying for, you're paying for active management, you're paying for somebody to, to do the work and make investment decisions on your behalf. So a common way to kind of determine if that's happening is, you know, are, is the portfolio, you know, does the whole portfolio hold 300 stocks? 
if they hold 300 stocks, it's going to look and feel just like one of those market ETFs we talked about a while ago. You want to see a manager that has a philosophy and some conviction and they're, they're buying this company because it fits and they're, they're buying it in a good weight. And what that means is a portfolio of Canadian stocks, for instance, is in that in the 30s, right? Not in the hundreds, not in the, the 200s, but, but in the 30s is a good point. And I would argue maybe a little bit higher on the, the international side, but same sort of thing. You don't want a portfolio of hundreds and hundreds of stocks because it's just gonna look and feel like, like the index. The other kind of side, and again, this what I would expect if you make this move is, is just understanding your fee structure um, making sure it's clear and understandable. In the managed portfolio space, it should be straightforward. It should be the amount of money you had and it's a percentage based on those total assets. And I mean, there's lots of different kind of pricing setups, but for the most part, it, it should be clear and understandable. And you should be, you should always feel like you can ask the questions if there's parts of the fee structure that you don't understand. And if I would argue if the investment manager can't explain it to you easily and quickly, um, maybe it's not the right fit. The one thing that I think goes completely underappreciated by a lot of investors is the idea of where is your money actually sitting? You know, I, I think you know, we've moved to a very digital place where money is, is a, a number on a screen, uh, it's, it's bits and bytes, but it's always good to understand, okay, well, where does my money sit? So. The, the term for this essentially is, is custodian. So, so where, uh, and a custodian is a type of bank or trust company that's essentially uh, regulated and mandated to hold client assets. So it can be, they hold stocks, they hold bonds, they hold cash. They're meant to be the, the keeper of things and they're, they're, they're also the recorder of things. So they would keep track of uh, how much of this do you have and how much of that do you have? And, you know, from our perspective, knowing exactly where your money is is, is very important and, and how it's structured. It, it might be a little esoteric or, or foreign for a lot of people, but I think they're important questions to ask and, and you should be comfortable with the answer. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Um, you know, when I also look at this, probably the, the two that stands out for me is the investment philosophy. And then secondly, the custodian, that's, that's where, um, where it can really go pear shape if something happens to the custodian and it doesn't go from a drawdown of 5% or negative return of 5%, it goes to, it goes to zero. So, um, uh, so that custodian is super important. I think the last one that um, uh, maybe just that I want to mention is just, the, and again, it's back to the clients, you know, what does the client see? And, uh, you know, the type of reporting, I think that's, that's maybe the last one, the type of the reporting that the client gets, you know, is it customized, is it accessible, is it online? Uh, and I think that's just the difference between a, um, a mutual fund and an ETF again. Uh, you get the fund fact sheet of that portfolio uh, or that fund, whereas within a managed portfolio, it's reported on your specific allocation as opposed to a fun fact sheet. So I think that's just important that the listeners just understand that when they go to a fund manager that they will get reporting done specifically based on, on their portfolio as opposed to um, uh, a fun fact sheet or you know something like that. Listen, this is, this is great. Jamie, I'm just, you know, uh, I know that the time is running out. I, I think about this 
this guy listening to this podcast, he has he has ETFs, he has mutual funds, maybe he has got a Robinhood stock portfolio, maybe he has a managed account already. What would you say to um, just broadly, if we look at this guy, you know, listening, he has all these things. What are two or three things that he, he or she can go and do to know whether they get the right value for money? Uh, you know, should they stay in this world of mutual funds? Should they stay in the world of a managed portfolio? What are two or three things that, that, that you can maybe give them homework to go and, and check out and see whether they're in the right, in the right uh, place? So I think the, the, first, the first piece of homework is, is how much time and energy do you want to spend? Like, does the family want to spend on, on doing this, right? And if, if one thing I hope comes across in, from our conversation is that this is, this is a time and energy type of intensive kind of approach, right? Um, especially if you're looking for a specific outcome. Things change fast. Um, things are always changing, and having a partner or somebody looking out for you, I think, is is important uh, if you're not able to spend the time or energy. And I think that's again, that's one of the things that uh, is very important. The other thing I would look at is, you know, based on the size of your portfolio, just trying to get an appreciation for where the fees are, what they are, are you getting value, and again. Buying mutual funds, um, there's there's value there. Yes, they can be relatively expensive, but they're very accessible. They come with tons of regulation, and and for small amounts of money, if you're just starting out, it's it's a it's a great way to start getting exposure to investing and and what can happen. As you get larger, and your objectives become a little bit more defined, it's not just well we're saving now. It's we'd like to save for this, or we'd like to do this, or generate this. Um, that's where I think you can start looking at, again, it becomes a time, a time equation. How much time and energy do you want to spend or is this something that you want to outsource? And, and I think that outsourcing part is, is really just trying to explore, is there a partner out there that I can get alignment with from a philosophy standpoint, that I can get an understanding of how they do what they do and, and help me meet my objectives? And I think that's where, that's where you can kind of start looking. Um, and hopefully use some of the things we talked about today as, as kind of guideposts to what to look for. Jamie, um, thank you so much. It was great to have you on the show. And I think there's some really good points there for investors to look out for uh, and to structure their portfolios that are value for money and that they feel comfortable in terms of investing. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. You can find our content on wallstack.ca or on LinkedIn. I'm Vincent Hayes, and you've been listening to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series.